In our passage in Acts chapter 2, our Lord had already ascended into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, we read these words in verses 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, that is Jesus, he was lifted up while they were looking on, that is the apostles, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And then even before that, we could read in the Gospel of Mark, so then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So here we have two texts that tell us something about the ascension. They assert that Christ ascended, went up in bodily in his body that he came out of the grave from. The same body that he was resurrected in is the body that was taken up into heaven. Um, that is where, when he sat down at the right hand of God and from whence, in the older language, he shall come again. An old catechism asks and answers this question, how do you understand that he ascended into heaven? And here's the answer that Christ, his disciples looking on, was taken up from the earth into heaven and yet still is there for our sakes. He's in heaven for our sakes. We'll talk about that. And will be until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. So he's ascended and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, the theologians, oh, and I believe the catechisms call that his current session. He's ruling, but he's also conducting priestly activity. He's praying. He's interceding. So he's ascended, and he's in heaven for our sakes. For instance, we read in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore... He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, so there he is, ascended. One of the things he's doing is making intercession for his sheep. So his work of accomplishing redemption, having been completed, his intercession is for the purpose of the application of redemption, uh, so redemption accomplished, now redemption applied. When he is absent from us in body, the Lord is in heaven. There's a hymn, by the way, by Charles Wesley that captures this well. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He live, He ever lives above for me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead, his blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, 
I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. So here's John Wesley in poetic fashion. Uh, oh, yes, John Wesley in poetic fashion, or Charles Wesley, excuse me, gets at the essence of how Christ in heaven is there for our sakes. We have a heavenly priest. We have a heavenly interceder. Now, what's interesting about this is that Christ not only ascended into heaven, so he's bodily absent from us. Before he ascended into heaven, he said at the end of the Great Commission, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's, there's this, he's bodily absent from us, and then the question is, how could he say, I'm with you to the end of the age, if they saw him ascend bodily and creaturely bodies, there's no non-creaturely bodies, by the way, all bodies are creaturely created, bodies are located in a place, they are circumscribed, okay, they have limitations, they're finite, I can go from Palmdale to Lancaster, but I'm when I'm in Lancaster, I'm not in Lancaster and Palmdale. I'm only in Lancaster. Jesus ascended to heaven, but before he ascended into heaven, he said, and lo, I am with you always. How could he be with them always, and yet they saw him leave? And he even said, I, I'm not going to always be with you. I'm going to send a helper. And yet at the end, before the ascension, in Matthew 28, he says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the catechism asks this question with that apparent dilemma. Is not Christ with us then until the end of the world, as he has promised? And here's the answer. Christ is true God and true man. Ah, This is a theological answer. And so ascending to his, according to his manhood, is not now on earth. How can we say that? Because they saw him ascend according to his human nature. But according to his Godhead, his majesty, his grace and spirit is at no time apart from us. You see what the catechism's doing? It's distinguishing, right? I said that a lot. You read that old, he's a paisan, that old Italian uh, Francis Turretin, and He gives options for various views, and he quite often says, we distinguish. Is our Lord wholly absent from us or wholly present with us? We distinguish. According to his human nature, he's wholly absent from us. According to his divinity, he's wholly present with us. Here the catechism asks about the promise of Christ's presence with believers in light of the fact that he was had ascended into heaven. So how can be how can he be in heaven and with us at one and the same time? Well, if he's very God and very man, there's a sense he can be absent from us and yet present with us. Now it's mysterious. The incarnation is is uh, the second greatest mystery. It's a revealed mystery of the Christian faith. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. First 
Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 16. It's mysterious, but it's revealed. We can't exhaust it, but we can know some things about it. We have to distinguish. The one person with two natures is to be distinguished. The one person can act according to each nature, each nature doing that which is proper to itself. It's proper for human nature to be localized, and if he ascended into heaven, then he's absent from us. It's proper for the divine nature to be omnipresent, and therefore he's with us. But the promise of, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, it, it's, just, it's not merely an affirmation of divinity or divine uh, omnipresence. That's a given, right? When, when, when Jesus said, I'll be with you, it's got to be more than just, this is a bad way to put it, but generic omnipresence, because that's always true with reference to believers or unbelievers. Everybody is in the presence of God. So this promise has to be more than just generic omnipresence. It has to be something like this. I'm with you, strengthening you, for you, depositing grace in your soul, sustaining you, protecting you, preserving you. No one shall fall out. No, no one will fall out of my hand. That kind of thing. It has to be some special manifestation of the divine omnipresence for the well-being and benefit of those that he makes the promise to. And I think that's what he's getting at. Yeah. It's like, without this, we're in big trouble. Because if you think, uh, oh, I just need, I need the Lord to help me become a Christian, but, but being a Christian, is, I can, I'm on my own. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. Okay, if we don't have that second part, it's like hopeless. You mean I get salvation free and clear and then I have to do the rest all myself? No. So this is a, a promise of special presence, special power, special comfort when needed, uh, uh, of the ever omnipresent divinity of the Son when he promises that to be with his church all the way to the end of the age, uh, I think it's a special promise. The answer it, of this apparent dilemma, again, is to distinguish between what Christ does according to his human nature and what he does according to his divine nature. I have a section here. Um, to remind you that our Lord taught their disciples that he would not be with them always, on the one hand, and yet that he would be with them always. I won't be with you always, I'll be with you always. Well, which is it? you, you got to feel that. I'm going to be absent from you, I'm going to be with you always. It seems like a, a contradiction. He said this, for instance, in Matthew 26, 11, For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then we have in John 16, 16 to 18, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the father. So they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Now, the words, because I go to the Father, refer to the, the ascension. Peter confirms that Christ is now in heaven when he says in Acts 3, 
whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Peter goes on to say, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward announced these days. And these days in Acts 3 refers to the days in which the apostles were living, the days between the first and second advent of our Lord after the resurrection and after the ascension. So this ascension is a real ascension of his relocated human body. By the way, was the incarnation a relocation? That's a weird question, isn't it? Wait a minute. Incarnation. Relocate. What are you talking about? Did Jesus have a body before his incarnation in heaven and then God infused it into Mary? And the answer is no. If you were going to say yes, thank you for not saying it. No, that's a new thing in that womb. That's one of the mysteries of it. It's like, then how the Son of God assumed this created human soul and body that was nurtured in Mary's womb? That's one of the unique doctrines of the Christian faith. But it's not that he was relocated, it's that he was, that he manifested his presence through a new instrument. The human nature, body and soul. I think that's a better way of saying it. But anyway, when he ascended, he really ascended. So he's gone. And he told him, I'm not going to be with you always. And yet we read these words, I am... Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's that dilemma thing. The only way this could be true is if Christ is referring to the, his presence by virtue of his divine nature, right? He can't ascend into heaven, having promised to be with them always, and then the disciples go 12 different directions, and the human body is split up in 12 parts so he can be present with them always? He couldn't be talking about his human body. Now, some of you, especially if you have a Lutheran background, you know how what Luther did with this, at least the Lutherans. They said upon either resurrection or ascension that the human nature now shares the attributes of divinity so that the body can be ubiquitous or omnipresent. And that was a Lord's Supper argument for him. Don't make faces at me. I'm sorry. That's just what, what they said. And it's not okay. It's really awkward, and I think it's not orthodox. But we're not Lutherans, and we're not here to spit, um, spit wads at them. We are here to say that Jesus said on the one hand, I'm not going to be with you, and I'm going to be with you. And we're trying to make heads and tails of that. How do we do that? The catechism goes on. Are not... Are not by this means the two natures in Christ pulled apart if his humanity be not wherever his divinity is? See what they're saying? Okay, one person, two natures, but his humanity is only and exclusively now in heaven. Doesn't this split the person apart? Here's their answer. No, seeing his divinity is incomprehensible and everywhere present, it follows necessarily that the same is without the bounds of his human nature which he took to himself and yet is nevertheless in it and abides personally united to it. 
let me try to explain that. The divine nature of the Son is not bounded or limited by the things his human nature is. That's what they're getting at. His human nature has limitations, created limitations because it's really human. Very God, very man, okay? Not just fake man, superman, man. Body, soul, limits, finite, came into existence in the womb by virtue of this determination of divine power by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. So the divine nature of the Son is not bounded or limited by that which the human nature is limited. You you remember? Jesus grew in stature and wisdom among men. Did the divine nature of the Son develop and grow? Did the human body of the Son develop and grow? Yes. Why? Because it is proper for the nature of a body to grow. It is improper for divinity to grow or develop. That would deny the perfections of of God. It would deny the immutability of God and so on and so forth. Christ is one person with two natures. That's how you solve these texts. He acts as our mediator according to both nature, each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Here's our confession. Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. What does that mean? Well, when... Paul says, they killed the Lord of glory. Who did they kill? The person of the Son incarnate. What died? Divinity or humanity? Humanity. But the person is called the Lord of glory, but something that occurred only to and could only occur with the human nature is is predicated or said of the entire person. Did the divinity of the Son of God die under the wrath of God? No, because it wasn't guilty. Did the humanity of the Son of God die under the wrath of God? Yes, because he assumed our guilt. The Son of God, we could say this, God the Son incarnate died according to the only nature they could die, his human nature. His human nature rose from the dead, his human nature ascended into heaven, and yet we have promises on the one hand, I'm not going to be with you always, but I'm going to be with you always. There's another. The the person is saying, I'm going to be present with you. The person is saying, I'm going to be absent from you. So we have to distinguish. The person is speaking about, in terms of his presence, his divine nature, in terms of his absence, his human nature. You see see the distinction there? It helps you with a lot of verses. Uh, for instance, does God have blood by which he purchased the church with? Acts 20, 28 seems to say, indicate that God has blood uh, with the, the blood of God by which he purchased the church or something like that. You know the text. If you don't, go read it uh, on the way home. It's one of those texts you're going, wait a minute, God has blood, divinity has blood, God the Son incarnate according to the only nature that can have, a, can have blood, have blood and shed it, had blood and shed it for us. That's how you have to distinguish that. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them. This is the last thing he said in that passage. He says, 
I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It was Jesus, according to his human nature, that spoke those words, right? His lips were flapping. He was sucking in air and blowing back over throat organs, and sounds came out, and they heard him. That's human nature, okay? The person of the Son is speaking by virtue of the only nature that can speak audible words, his human nature. But the promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, is fulfilled not according to his human nature, but according to his divine nature. According to Christ's human nature, he's now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. According to Christ's divine nature, he is giving grace and gifts to men by his spirit and present with his people on the earth, manifesting the generic um, omnipresence of God in a peculiar, redemptive, loving, gracious way to his people according to the promises of the word of God. We distinguish, and it's very important to do that. He still acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. That was a lecture, wasn't it? You prepare a good lecture and hope and pray God turns it into a sermon. Uh, but I think it's germane to our meeting here. Um, for instance, blessed Jesus, at thy word, we are all gathered to hear, what's the next word? Thee. Remember that hymn, number 220? Blessed Jesus, at thy word, here the minister comes, opens his Bible. We are all gathered to hear the minister. We really want to hear Barcellus, man. No, I'm just the mouthpiece. Um, you want to hear from Christ, right? That hymn 220 says, there's something unique about preaching that when it's blessed by heaven, it's Christ preaching to his people through the preacher. My sheep, hear my voice. Now, it's, it's all a metaphor there, but I think that's true of any of the true elect believing on the earth ever in the history of the world. Jesus said that my sheep hear my voice. Through what mechanism? You hear like audible voice from heaven? You, my child, are mine. We've never done that. You might have had that happen to you. It's weird, whatever. Okay, happens. Weird things happen. But that's not what he means. You need to hear an audible voice from heaven. It's, um, and the Lord opened her heart. Remember Acts 16, 4, or whatever it is? 16, 14, 16, 14, I think it is. Paul and Lydia. Lydia was listening to the words spoken by Paul, according to the only nature he could speak, the only nature he is, was and is, his human nature, speaking words to her ear, while that was happening, the Lord was opening her heart. And the Lord in the context is the Lord Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father, according to his human nature, but continually doing and teaching on the earth through the apostolic doctrine and proclamation of the word of God. Now, you want that to happen here. Well, when God is pleased to bless it, it is. It happens. But also there's a absence, presence motif with the supper too, isn't it? Because his body is really located in heaven. This is my body. This 
is my blood. That was the big fight at the Reformation, post-Reformation time. How do you put all this stuff together? Well, we can't deny the body is located in heaven at the right hand of the Father. We have to say that. But neither can we deny that Jesus said, this, the bread, is my body, and this, the copper wine, is my blood. He said that. So we have to ask, what does is mean in that sentence, right? This is my body. Some of you probably heard the John Gershner thing where he looks over and he says to Sproul, Sproul knows I've been agonizing for 40 years over this. Martin Luther and Zwingli, I split the Reformation right in half, you know, over the word is. It's an important word. This is. I thought his body's in heaven. He ascended into heaven. How can every time we take the Lord's Supper, the minister say this is, and I break it in front of you, and then I say this is, and we take the cup together. Does the body relocate? Well, it'd have to do it all over the earth, right? Can't do that. Does the body assume divine perfections? We don't want to say that either. He's just he's very God and very man still. Then how can he say this? It, what does Paul mean? This is my body. This is my blood. Um, when we partake, we have com- the communion of the blood and body of our Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.16, right? That's what it says there. Communion. What does communion mean? Well, it means various things. Primarily, uh, its meaning is based on its use in context. And we don't have time to go there. But if we did, I'd show you that in that passage, communion, koinonia, fellowship in the body and blood of the Lord is talking not about what we do horizontally with each other, though we get that. That's in the Bible as well. It's talking about some sort of fellowship, communion, top-down, vertical, from heaven to earth through the means of the supper. In other words... The supper is a means of grace. And a means of grace is something ordained by the Lord through which, when he's pleased, uh, purchased grace becomes applied grace. Benefits from heaven get to us. Benefits from our exalted mediator at the right hand of the Father who intercedes for us get to us. The benefits of Christ get to the people of Christ by the virtue of the Spirit of Christ through the means Christ has ordained. Preaching, supper, prayer. That's how, that's how he can say that. And we can say, well, we believe in the real presence of our Lord at the Lord's Supper, the real spiritual presence, that he is with us and that when he pleases, he so blesses and draws us near to him and gives us a mediatorial gift, more of his spirit, more of his grace, more of his Kindness, and that's what we want to happen. All every sermon, uh, it can happen during singing. By the way, as long as you're singing the truths of the Word of God, the Word of God, read, preached, sung, can be a means of grace to us. God blessing it. The sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, upon God's blessing them, are a means of grace to His people. They remind us. They strengthen us. They invigorate us. They help us. May the Lord do that.
uh, as we take the supper. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. We pray your blessings on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as we are going to take it together. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.